The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading this morning from the book of Galatians, not a book that for the most part expresses themes of Christmas. And in fact, the, the passage I read for you, Galatians 4, 1 through 7, is really rooted in an argument about the place of the Jewish law and how Christians were brought to understand their sin and their shortcomings by the law, but through the law, Christ came as one to fulfill it and bring it to completion. And in the midst of that are two verses, four and five of this passage, that are particularly wonderful for us to consider this day, two days before Christmas. Listen to God's Word, Galatians 4. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons… God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's holy word. When Charles Wesley penned his most famous Christmas carol, the hymn that the choir sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, He left in it this line that might, if misunderstood, be rather puzzling to people. The words, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. I actually used to wonder what that meant. Late in time. Was Jesus late? Was he late in the way you might be if you got caught in heavy traffic somewhere and you had to tell the boss, I just couldn't make it through that traffic jam. Sorry, I'm late. I think we assume that Wesley meant something a little different. It seems he meant something like this, a long time in coming, or long expected and now finally here. Given the high expectations that had been built up across many centuries for the appearing of Christ before he came. He did come at last, and he came at God's exact right moment. Now, you know, there are people, and maybe you're one. I don't know if I'll educate someone here today, but most of you know these things, that people are shocked to know that while we celebrate Christmas every December 25th, and we think 
we know how the calendar works. This is 2012. And so you'd say, well, it was 2012 years ago that Jesus came. That's not exactly right. Unfortunately, the Roman calendar that was established supposedly based on the birth of Jesus was wrong. It was in error. The calculations that originally set the dates were not correct, and Jesus was not born in the year zero or the year one. In fact, we aren't certain exactly of the year he was born, but we can give a pretty good construction because we know that Herod the Great, according to the Bible, was alive when Jesus was an infant. He's the one that tried to kill the Savior when the Magi came and reported about him. And we assume that Jesus was perhaps six months to two years or so old at the time that the Magi came. We know that Herod died in 4 BC. That is set. That's according to Roman record. So that tells us right away Jesus had to be born before the year that we would call 4 B.C. Now some would say then, how about 5? A better scholar's guess is probably 6. The year 6 B.C. seems to have the greatest consensus as perhaps the right year for the birth of Jesus. They just didn't get the calendar right when they started calculating If they had, I guess this would be the end of 2018, but it's not, of course. And as we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, you'd say, well, we've got that right, don't we? No, sorry. The date of December 25th is actually based on the Roman festival of Saturnalia that welcomed the winter season, the solstice that was coming. It just passed here, and by the way, the Mayans missed it. Sorry, Mayans, but uh, the winter season has begun. The Romans had a festival, and that's when Christmas was set in the early church. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. We don't know the date. There is a strong belief that he, and this really shoots some things down, that he was probably born in the spring That kills all those carols, you know, about cold winter's night and snow. And Jesus was probably born in the spring of 6 B.C. At least that's the best scholar's guess. Well, you say, we don't even know the date. How can we celebrate the certainty that God was doing things in a timely way, taking advantage of the right moment, the right opportunity, which In effect, Galatians 4 tells us he was doing. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That would be good scripture for anyone to memorize, by the way. That's a wonderful description of what Christmas was. A short passage packed full of truth that I'll try to open up here a bit for you. First, I would remind you, and and standing away from the passage itself, just in terms of the world and society and culture, in terms of historic opportunity for earth itself, world history was uniquely prepared for Christ. This is a, a lot of things we could go in along this line. Just mention a few Ecclesiastes 3 declares that to everything there's a season and there's a time for every purpose under heaven. Paul in Galatians is saying Christ came 
when the time was ripe, it was opportune that he came when he did. And we can say that several ways, even from factors of church history or world history alone. One of them was the fact that he was born under the rule of Caesar Augustus, we know from Luke. That's when the taxation came. And Caesar Augustus was the one who really began to rule in a time called the Pax Romana, the great peace of Rome. Rome had defeated most of her enemies at this time. They were pretty much at the apex of their power. And they had international territory in all directions under good control. There weren't that many battles, that many wars going on. So there was a society with international calm, a time for people to think and reflect and look to God. Also, though, alongside that was the fact that right at that time and under that rule of Caesar Augustus was the height of feverish engineering activity going on in Rome as roads were extending everywhere. I say, well, how is that so important? Well, you just have to picture the world without roads to understand. A world where there are only trails, donkey trails or footpaths. I was born in 1949, and I can't remember that well the world or the United States without our interstate highway system, but it was the Eisenhower administration in the 50s that built most of the interstate highways. And many of you, some anyway, are old enough to remember that if you were going to go coast to coast, you traveled on a two-lane road like Route 30 crossing Pennsylvania and the other states. That was what you had. You didn't have any six-lane highways with clover leaves. Well, think of a society without roads. And Rome suddenly brought a spider's web of transportation networks that changed society as far as access and unity for people to get new ideas and hear about new things like the gospel that was no less revolutionary than the Internet is in our own day. And then add to that the fact that only in this recent time of society, when Jesus was born, was the Greek language being adopted everywhere as a common language. Before Alexander the Great, people spoke their own languages, and someone from a territory over here couldn't talk to somebody 50 or 100 miles away. But suddenly now the Greek language was being used the way English is used as the language of commerce and trade and politics in our world today. People could communicate, and they could talk about the new ideas that came from God's Son being born. On top of that, the opportunity was happening within the nation of Israel of a great expectation for the Messiah to appear. It was 400 years from the time that a last prophet had predicted that Messiah would come. 400 years of silence. And in that time of silence, Israel had the law, of course, and it interpreted the law and used the law largely to create a, an onerous system of rules that made people feel guilty and frustrated in the way the law was applied. And they said, there's got to be something better than this. And many of them looked to the ancient prophecies and were ready for their Messiah. That's why they so eagerly greeted John the Baptist and said, is he the one? Or then Jesus, when they heard of him, they said, oh, maybe he's the one. They were eager in this particular period of history to see God's word being fulfilled. And, you know, everywhere, not just in Israel, but in other societies, we can read from 
the analysis of ancient history that there was a great spiritual hunger and vacuum going on. People were tired of the old religions, the old religions of pagan, mythological God, the old religions of uh, practices uh, of crazy worship that primarily featured erotic sexual practices or even human sacrifices. People were saying, we're hungry to see God work in our midst and do something. Paul encountered in Athens philosophers who simply sat around all day talking about the latest new idea. And would this new idea perhaps bring something that would give us hope or give us meaning in our lives? There was this God-shaped vacuum. And it was into such a time that Jesus was born, a time that was ripe for the good news of God in Christ. You know, I think our society in 2012 is not so very different. We are technologically so advanced that we don't even know what kind of phone or tablet or device to buy because we know as soon as we buy it, there's going to be another one that's going to completely outdate what we've just bought. But ask yourself, do we have more to say to one another for all our technology? Do we have a more meaningful philosophy of life and worldview for all the buttons we can push and all the tweets we can send in every direction in the world? Our age is just as hungry as the age of Christ to see God break through and change people's lives. Well, I've mentioned world conditions, but now I want to turn to the text more directly in the second major point and and look at the divine goals that God was going to accomplish because I think that's what we have contained here in verses 4 and 5 of Galatians 4. We have God's saving work accomplished in the fullness of time. I wonder if you ever think about God from a standpoint of Him being absolutely punctual, always on time. Very few of us are always on time. In fact, some people make it a virtue never to be on time. They, if something's going to begin at 7, they'll, I'll be there by 7.15. Don't worry about it. God is always on time. God knows the hour of every event when the best opportunity is for anything to happen. He not only knows it, He has appointed it. He has what we call His hidden decrees for history by which He plans things from eons past, even before we were born. And we believe that the birth of Christ was perfectly planned to accomplish. It was the hinge that connected the past and the future. There are other scriptures, by the way, that chime in on this. Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10 says, God made known to us the mystery of His will, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times had reached their fulfillment. Who knew that those times were fulfilled in that hour? God did. His purposes were ready to be fulfilled. They were ripe for plucking, we might say. Romans 5, 6 adds this, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for us. So look with me for a minute at these statements in verses 4 and 5 of Galatians 4 here and see the redemptive goals God was accomplishing in this timely way. First we read, he sent forth his son. 
The Greek language there means he sent him out of himself. He was sending Christ from a place where he existed to another place where he would dwell and carry out meaningful things. He was sent. He existed before. He already was, but he came into this world. We think of what John said in John chapter 1, those wonderful words, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was in the beginning with God, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the one and only who came from the Father. He was sent from the Father. We must see this emphasized as Paul writes it here, that Jesus came from that place where he was one with God. I've been enjoying teaching a church history class for some of you on early church doctrine and how the church had to wrestle with this great mystery that Jesus was God in flesh, but he was real man. And they they struggled and tried to say, how do we state this? How do we understand this? And we got the great statements from the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon that are historic definitions that help us so much in understanding this mystery of God sending His Son into a world where He did not originally belong but came to be one with us. And then Galatians 4.4 goes right on and says, not only did He come out from God and be sent, but He was born of a woman. He had a real human birth Mysterious, yes. Contradiction, no. That Jesus, who always existed, came to exist in a new way in a clump of cells in the body of a young woman. A clump of cells that we, with our great instruments of electronic microscopes and sonograms and all these things, can now see this, this simple clump of cells. God came to inhabit a wonder, a mystery. But it's what Genesis 3.15 had predicted, that he would be the seed of the woman. And just as he was of God, now he would be of us, of our substance, truly both, not one or the other. And he could be a real man, a man who would share our our emotions, our experiences, our getting tired, our being hungry, a man who shared everything that we are except our sin, a man that could hunger, a man who could suffer, and a man who could die. But then look what he says thirdly here as the apostle writes that he was born under the law. God gave his law to teach us who he is, that he's a moral God. He's a righteous God. He requires righteousness. You cannot stand in his presence without righteousness. But the law also teaches you, you don't have any righteousness of your own. You're unrighteous completely. Well, Jesus was born under the law with the great difference that he was so perfectly attuned to the law that to him it was not a burden. It was not, you know, an onerous You know, we see a bunch of rules and we say, oh, how can I ever keep one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight? I can't keep all those rules. The rules were no burden to Jesus. They were an expression of his perfect character. 
If you think of the law of God as a tuning fork, some of you know what that is, a tuning fork that you strike a note and then that note you might use to tune this piano so that a middle octave C or whatever is tuned exactly to the tuning fork. Well, the life of Jesus Christ was exactly tuned to the tuning fork of God's law. It wasn't a struggle for him to keep. It didn't convict him and say, oh, whoa, I'm a sinner. I can't do that. It was his delight. The scripture says the law was was Jesus' delight. And he could obey it. And he did. And he went to his cross having perfectly obeyed it and being qualified. Thereby, God and man, perfect obedience to the law, the qualified sacrifice who could die in our place. You know, we get all sentimental about Christmas. We love the baby and mother. I know, I, I, I'm up here and I see you on Christmas Eve when the, the tableau is going on and Mary comes in and it's good. She doesn't just say, usually she doesn't just have a baby or a doll. She has a baby. Somebody's real baby. And you're all, oh, look, look, who's that baby? And everybody wants to see that. And there's, there's sort of a sentimental glow around that. Well, let me tell you, Jesus came to the cradle, but he didn't come to make the cradle the symbol of Christianity. When have you ever seen a woman wearing a gold chain with a little feed box on that gold chain? And she's, oh, well, that's the symbol of my Christian faith. You say, that's odd. I thought it was the cross. It is the cross, isn't it? And there's nothing sentimental about a cross. Nobody waxes all warm and soft at the idea of a naked man nailed to an execution tree, writhing in pain, bleeding, and dying. Jesus didn't come just for the cradle. He came for the cross. And he was qualified to go to the cross because he perfectly obeyed. Look what Paul says here in verse 5. He came to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. We couldn't accomplish that. Paul's saying we needed somebody to come and be what we are to accomplish this on our behalf that we might be reborn and adopted and brought into God's family. You see, we left the family. We were alienated from the family in the Garden of Eden. God's dear Son came to bring us home and to put us back in the family. Look what Paul writes here as he comes to verse 6. As his Son comes into our hearts and his Spirit comes into us, what is it we say? Abba, my Father. There are many people who foolishly want to talk about the notion of the fatherhood of God, and they say, well, God's the father of everybody. No, he isn't. The Bible never, ever teaches that. Never. The Bible teaches that God is the creator of all men. But he's the father of those who come to him through Jesus Christ and have a new birth, receiving the righteousness of Christ, who then, for the very first time, by the adoption of grace through faith, can say, Daddy, to God. Many Israelites thought that was blasphemous, that Jesus would pray and call God Father. They said, do you hear what he's just said? That's not what you call God. That's what Jesus called God. 
And that's what he allows us to call God. My Father, who works in history and time and space to bring salvation to light. I remember when I was a boy, I was probably 11 or 12, when I was helping my grandfather one day on his farm. And we were moving sacks of grain in the barn, some cattle feed, I guess, had to be moved from one part of the barn to another. I don't know how many sacks there were, but I was showing my grandfather how strong I was that I could hoist a big sack and do it in a hurry and plop it down and go get another one. And I was doing twice as many as he was. And my grandfather then was an old guy, okay? He must have been all of 60. (laughs) To a 12-year-old, that's really ancient, And I had the temerity. I remember what impudence. I said to my grandfather, Grandpa, can't you work faster? I would never. I was really insulting, but kids kids don't think how rude things are. And my grandfather didn't take offense, and he said, Michael, you know what you have to learn to do? You have to learn to work at a speed that you can maintain that pace all day long from morning to night. In other words, if you rush around like crazy and hoist sacks and throw them around, you're going to be out flat by noon. My grandfather had learned how to work from morning till night at a pace that he could keep up. Now, my grandfather wasn't God. I don't suggest that. But I suggest to you that that pace is the way God works. Well-planned, deliberate, knowing what has to be accomplished in what order, to get things done as he would design to do them in history. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has set eternity in the hearts of men, and yet they cannot fathom what he has done from beginning to end. We're all like me, the 12-year-old, saying, God, why don't you do it faster? God, I told you that I needed that prayer answered last week or three weeks ago. What are you doing? Are you ever going to get it figured out what I need? And some of us are actually that rude and impudent with God. We think prayer is getting him to meet our demands. When prayer is actually learning to be patient and submissive and quiet and having our schedules and our ideas revised as we see that our Heavenly Father is doing things, but He will only do them as He determines to do them, when He determines to do them. There's a fullness of time for everything in our lives. God knows it, and we're only learning it imperfectly and poorly most of the time. And you know, there's that fullness of time in every life to know that you have become a son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ. A fullness of opportunity. And I wonder if there's somebody who might have that opportunity before them today who could say, you know, I'm starting to understand that I don't know it all. And I get a lot of things wrong. And in fact, I've really messed up my life. And I've not scheduled things well. And I've been mad at God for a long time. There's an opportunity for you to bow your life before your God and Savior, before Jesus Christ. As 2012 closes and people tell us we're headed for the financial cliff, let me tell you, if you're without Christ, you're headed for something worse 
than a financial cliff. You're headed for a bottomless chasm of disaster without Christ. I've buried a lot of people in 2012. It's been a sad year for that. And yet, as far as I know, every single one of those people was a believer, born again, adopted by God, who when they died saw the face of Christ and welcomed that with joy. Would that be true for you? If 2012 meant your death or soon after? Now you say, hey, this is a grim subject for Christmas. Well, life is grim. Sandy Hook Elementary School was grim. It was terrible. And I can tell you by a guarantee that just as there are 900-some people in this room, some of you will not be here on Christmas next year. You say, that's a nasty thing to say. Well, it's just true. It's a fact. Will you have entered the opportunity to bow yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ, call him your Savior, offer him your life, so that when you do face God, you will say, Abba, Daddy. He will say, welcome, my child. I pray that you'll be learning, waiting upon, praying for the exhibition of God's purposes in his timing in your life. Amen. Father, you have wonderful purposes for every one of us. There are little children here who will rise in this world to do great things perhaps be admired and be famous, be wise, be great teachers or managers or business owners or politicians. There are significant lives among us here that you have used to do things noted by men and even famous. There are quiet lives here that also have lived out your opportunity before Christ who aren't well known, but they have realized your purposes. Our Father, May not one go away today without considering the times of our life determined by Christ and the new work he wants to do in each one. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.